Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina. With us this week, Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, or NYPIRG. You can find out more at NYPIRG, N-Y-P-I-R-G dot O-R-G. And in the interest of full disclosure, Blair also does commentary for WAMC, where this program originates. And I've known Blair for what, a thousand years now, Blair? <laughs> yes. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. In the human way of saying things, I've known you for a long time. And today I'm going to start in a little different spot. I saw a column you wrote, Blair, World Cancer Day and New York's failure. How is New York failing when it comes to cancer? Well, two weeks ago, I guess, was World Cancer Day. And the idea of World Cancer Day is really to focus global attention on the problem of cancer. Uh, Cancer is, as everyone knows, you know, not just one type of a disease. It can affect any different kind of organ. It can attack the body in different kinds of ways. Uh, But the, not surprisingly, the leading killer is the uh, use of uh, tobacco products, typically cigarette smoking. And the World Health Organization uh, issued a report that showed that there's been a climb in lung cancer deaths, particularly in Asia, as a result of more and more smoking. In New York, um, uh, New York State has something called a tobacco control program at the health department, and their job uh, is to follow best practices issued by the federal government to develop a tobacco control program that attacks the problem in New York, uh, because in New York, just like the rest of the world, the leading cancer killer of men and women uh, is lung cancer uh, from basically, by and large, 80 to 90 percent of it is from uh, exposure to cigarette smoke. And so the failure is that since the basically the first year of the Cuomo administration, the state has slashed the state slashed its funding for tobacco control far, far less than the CDC recommends New York State should spend. And my column was about how much money the state collects from smokers, uh, well over a billion dollars. Uh, and they are starving. It's uh, the state's tobacco control program. And Governor Hochul is following in the footsteps of her predecessor in not adequately funding the program. And so in that way, I mean, you know, it's an addiction. Uh, you have to have programs to help people quit. And New York State is starving that program. And then what does the definition of adequately mean? I mean, the governor has pulled in the reins a bit when it comes to spending money as a result of the deficit. But as you said, the devil's in the details here. What does adequately mean, Blair, in your mind? Well, it's not in my mind. The Centers for Disease Control issue a report, and they give states a range for how much they should spend. Uh, in New York, it's no less than $142 million, and they recommend as much as a little over $200 million annually. And as I mentioned earlier, the state collects far more than a billion dollars or has collected far more than a billion dollars annually uh, from uh, uh, smokers through taxes and litigation settlements. So the state has the money. Uh, but New York spends around $40 million on its tobacco control efforts, far less than the CD recommends, mm-hmm. uh, and has never, never met the CDC minimum recommendation. The closest they ever came 
is during the Spitzer administration, which uh, raised the uh, spending on the program to nearly $90 million. So under Spitzer, the state was getting close. Uh, when Governor Cuomo came in, he slashed funding for the program, and Hochul's kept it more or less at the same level. Why, Blair? That's the question. Why? Are they using the money for other things? Why not take the recommendations and fulfill them? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. The state is going to spend upwards past $233 billion this year, so it's not like they don't have the money. And as I mentioned, they're collecting money from smokers. Um, and the, it would make sense to invest the money to help smokers to quit and to keep kids from starting. Basically, the only people that start smoking are 13- and 14-year-olds, and yet they don't. So the question is why? Well, my sense is that there's no organized entity that you know lobbies and makes campaign contributions that represents smokers uh, other than those who, that are fake, like uh, when the tobacco industry says they represent smokers, which they do in a certain weird and horrible way, uh, but it's because there's the organized constituency doesn't really exist uh, that represent their interests. And I think the public doesn't know. I think lawmakers would rather spend the money on other programs. It's not like we don't bring it to their attention. We testify every year at the health hearing, and we lay out the arguments as to why they should do it. It's not like they don't know. Uh, they choose not to. And the, the way that the executive bu- the budget's put together in New York is the state lawmakers work off of what the governor proposes, and this governor hasn't proposed it, uh, any significant increase or anything that meets nearly meets the levels of the CDC. Just FYI on this, uh, David, uh, the state has an annual independent audit of its own program, and every year they say the same thing that I'm saying right now. The state is starving, spending on its tobacco control program. And as a result, you know, people that might otherwise quit suffer needlessly and sometimes have early debts. And it's just, it simply isn't fair. The money's there and the state just refuses to spend it. One of the other things that I know this is not directly related to this report, but that is causing problems with the lungs and so many people across the state and the country is vaping. We're seeing from pulmonologists reports coming out that, you know, lung inflammation is now common and especially among young people because a lot of these vapes, tobacco and otherwise come in flavors. And we're seeing even more damage being done to humans' lungs as a result of vaping. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, and the way the state organizes its efforts to sort of tackle that problem is through its tobacco control program. Uh, Vaping is a real problem. I mean, that's what the tobacco industry has moved into from selling tobacco to uh, selling vape products. I mean, uh, and the, um, the flavored stuff is restricted to some extent. Uh, but you're right. I mean, how do you get 13 and 14 year olds to start either smoking cigarettes or vaping? Uh, you, you try to mask uh, the taste. And the way you do that in both products uh, is to offer flavor. And there's been some restrictions in the use of flavored, uh, such flavored products, but not completely. Uh, and so as a result, it makes it easier for people to adapt their lungs to inhaling vape or smoke. Uh, and then they get addicted, and then they can't stop, and their lungs get ruined as a result, and they suffer, you know, COPD or cancers or whatever the heck it is that turns out. And it's really sort of an amazing comment, commentary on, like, American capitalism uh, that we're allowed to sell products that serve no purpose, zero, other than harming people's health, and it's okay.
Yeah, and I'm wondering, Blair, forgive my ignorance if it's already been done, but like with the push now to have polluters pay for the pollution that they emit in New York, what about tobacco companies putting into a fund to pay medical bills for people who are suffering? Well, I mean, to some extent, that's what happened. I mean, the state sued, as all the states sued the tobacco companies in the late 1990s, and they did create a fund called the Master Settlement Agreement. And at the time, all of the press releases that came out of the leadership of New York State was like they were going to spend all the money on programs. Well, not all the money. They're going to spend the money on programs uh, to help people quit and to help uh, keep kids from starting. And they never did it. It was all the only smoke that came out of that was the hot air that was emanating from uh, statewide elected officials and state lawmakers saying they were going to do something and they never did it. Uh, so they created the program. They follow the CDC's recommendations on how the program should be designed, but then they don't spend the money. And so on the Climate Superfund, that theory is you make the polluters pay for the damage they, uh, that they're making on society. But in the Climate Superfund, which just so your uh, viewers, uh, your listeners know, that the Climate Superfund is a way to sort of tag the biggest oil companies for the cost of climate damages in New York. That legislation is designed in such a way that they can't pass the costs on to the public. What happens with the tobacco control issue is right. through cigarette taxes, it gets just passed on to the smokers. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's that's the worst of all worlds, right, is the, the tobacco companies Absolutely. make a dangerous product and they pass the costs on to the public anyway. So what's going to happen with this super fun thing? It's going to go through? Well, you, yeah, you know, it's hard because it's never been done before. And that's sort of the always from an advocate's perspective, that's the challenge is how do you convince people that something makes sense if no one has ever done it? And there's a bunch of states that have talked about it. It was kicked around as part of the, um, um, the uh, Build Back Better proposal by President Biden uh, in the Congress a couple of years ago. And so it's, it's not that it's a brand new idea, but it hasn't been implemented. And so, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's a program designed to make the biggest oil companies <clears throat> pay for the, the incredible damages that are, gonna, that are being caused. Billions of dollars in damages are being caused to the state now, and maybe as much as $10 billion a year uh, that's going to be spent on fixing roads, fixing bridges, making mass transit systems more weatherproof, adding air conditioning to schools, dealing with people who have a reaction to air pollution and end up in the hospital. All of those costs are going to be already billions, but will soon be tens of billions of dollars. And the way that New York State is set up is taxpayers are going to have to eat that, either through increased taxes or less services. And we argue uh, that make the oil companies pay and to do it in a way that they don't pass the costs on to the public. That's the key. Otherwise, you know, right now, lawmakers, you know, that they're, they're going to pass everything out to the to, out to the public. We don't think that's right. Um, the hard part is it's never been done before. And so we're socializing the issue. The state Senate passed it last year. We're hoping the assembly does this year and move it on to the governor. Why wouldn't super majorities of Democrats pass such legislation, Blair? Well, I mean, you know, anytime something hasn't been done before, there's a vacuum of knowledge. And people, particularly, I mean, law, when you think about it, like state lawmakers, it's like, you know, 11,000 bills get introduced, 1,000 get acted on every year. They can't possibly know everything about everything. And so when, if they're not used to the issue, 
they put it in a category in their head. And in this case, I believe people think of it in terms of what impact it does have on the public, that the cost could be passed on to the public, even though it's designed not to do that. They just think it does. And so it's really from an advocate's perspective, sort of doing a lot of meetings to educate them. And hopefully we will. I mean, you know, hope springs eternal. Those are the three words that I live by, David. Yeah, hope springs eternal. But Blair, we got to pay attention in this world. I'm sorry. There's a thousand bills, whatever. You're a legislator. Read them, be up on the issues, know what's happening in the state so that you can act accordingly. I mean, I talk to Republicans and Democrats all the time about climate change. And I talk to the Republicans, and if you say climate change, they turn their heads away. They say, oh, we can't affect the temperature. We're just one state. But when you say what you just said, we need to fix roads and bridges, you know, keep the water back from New York City. Whatever needs to be done needs to be done. And you would think Democrats and Republicans could agree on putting hard hats on the ground to deal with infrastructure. Well, you'd be a great lobbyist, David. I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, I think, you know, again, right now, the Republican talking point is that, yes, they believe in climate change, at least in New York and the rest of the country. They don't. They believe in the science of climate change. They just don't want to do anything about it. Which is, you know, indefensible. Um, we all have to do something about it. The world has to do something. Everybody has to do what they can do. Otherwise, we're going to have a, uh, a catastrophe of unbelievable proportions across the world by the end of this century. And so we have a responsibility to do something about it. So there's lots of things that have to be done, uh, like getting off the use of fossil fuels. But also, there's going to be costs. There's, I mean, if they turned off, if we turn off greenhouse gas emissions today. The planet will still be hotter than it's been uh, in you know, human history for the years to come. And that means more intense storms, rising sea levels. Uh, that means more disease. Uh, that means more forest fires out of Canada, wherever the heck they come from. That means more, worse air pollution. More and migration. That costs more migration. That's right. It's all costs money. And right now, the oil companies are fabulously wealthy. Uh, they made... Uh, from the January 21 through June of this year, they made um, uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars in profits, just the biggest oil companies. So we think that they should use some of that money to help pay what otherwise all of our all of your listeners and you and me are going to otherwise have to pay in higher taxes and worse services in the state. It just doesn't even seem even fair at the most basic level. My job is to, you know, talk to 213 legislators in the governor's office and get them to agree. Oh, you and your infernal logic, Spock. (laughs) (laughs) I have a special, if if I was next to you right now, David, I have this special sort of thing that I can tweak you in the neck with. How nice. Can you describe that tweaking object for us? (laughs) It will put you right to sleep. Well, you know, we let's jump from environment to an issue that is important to the public, which is the environment. I was just looking at the race between Tom Swazi, the Democrat, and Mazi Pillup, the Republican. Swazi came out on top in the 3rd Congressional District. That was the seat held by Santos and before him, Swazi. But one of the big issues in that campaign was environment. So the people are aware of these issues, and they are, let's hope, looking for candidates who support it. Yeah, I think Long Island's a little bit different. There you do find a more or less bipartisan consensus that something has to be done. I mean, Long Island is a giant sandbar, uh, and Nassau and Suffolk counties have 3 million people living on That doesn't count Queens and Brooklyn, which is another 3 million easily. 
And so they all understand. They, they go to the beach, and they see the beach isn't there anymore. They, they see they are actually living with rising sea levels and more intense storms and people's homes getting flooded. And so what you find, so for example, on the climate suit front, we were just talking about, there are assembly Republicans, for example, uh, that are sponsors of the bill. Uh, and so it's not, you know, the closer you get to the looming catastrophe, the more you understand what's going on. But, you know, like the frog in the, you know, the heating frying pan, uh, if you're in upstate, you know, you, you just think about the Canadian wildfires as, you know, lousy forest management instead of how could it be that the yeah. Canadian forest? Yeah, but I would, I would argue, I would argue a little coast. I would argue with you on that, Blair. Blair, we had the Amtrak with the buildings crumbling in Albany onto the tracks. A little further downstate, the land of the home that fell onto the tracks. Up here, we've seen incredible flooding. The ponds don't freeze over in the winter anymore. Birds are migrating differently. Again, if you're paying attention, you see the impact of climate change right here in upstate New York. And yes, the wildfires were a big trigger, I think, for many people to realize that it's closer than we realize. But it is right in our backyard. There's no question. Yeah, I totally agree with you, of course, because, you know, anybody with eyeballs and a brain that works can understand and can read a thermometer that the planet is heating up. I mean, the world, the experts tell you last year, 2023, was the hottest year in human recorded history. And that's fact. That's not a belief issue. That's just fact. It's just, you know, because the oil industry has front groups and they fund campaign contributions and everything else. Some people choose to just look at the short-term political benefit instead of what they're supposed to be doing, which is looking out for the long-term public interest. Yeah, and that means if the public has an interest, they have to vote. And I know Myperg is big on this. We've seen even college campuses now with polling sites for students to vote. you got a big presidential election year. That's going to certainly increase turnout. But turnout is still far below what a responsible citizenship should be doing in terms of voting. Yeah, I mean, New York has done a lot in the last few years to improve its moribund uh, voter participation rate. Um, And yet we're still below the national average. Uh, One of the big areas where there's a problem is among young people voting, which historically they're least likely to vote, partly because they just, you know, it's the first time they've ever voted. And they quite understand that even though in New York, you have a constitutional right to vote, you have to register to do it, which, of course, doesn't make any sense when you put all those sentences together, but you do. Uh, And um, you're right. New York has changed the law that requires that every college that has 300 registered voters living on campus or more must have a polling place. Now, the problem is uh, that, you know, I don't know where they put the polling places. I don't know if the polling places really happen. But in New York in 2022, you did not see long lines of students queuing up uh, to cast their ballots like you saw in other states. And the, the reason, I believe, is uh, that um, through, you know, not particularly good educational efforts on campus about how you register to vote and what does it mean to if you want to to register on campus so you can vote on campus uh, and other hostility that um, – either campus administrations or local boards of elections. I mean, down in Dutchess County, the Republican uh, commissioner just refused uh, to put a polling place on one of the campuses until he was filed by lawsuit. So it's like, it's, you know, there's all of this animosity uh, because people don't want certain people to vote. And that leads to depressed turnout. 
Yeah, and I'm seeing this anecdotally a trend among young people, sort of my college students, other young people that I've spoken to, and we see this in polls. That, you know, when it comes to the presidential contest, they certainly, if they lean to the left, they don't want Biden. And I hear from many of them they're not going to vote at all. So, you know, the idea that a protest vote does anything is kind of scary that people would reach the conclusion that, well, I'm just going to put my hands up and say, I'm not going to vote. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's really important. And when we're just talking about climate change, for example, what president is going to do a better job sort of tackling uh, this existential threat that they will face in their lifetime um, and that their children could be living in this horrible dystopian future because of decisions that were or were not made in 2025. And so, yes, young people should view it that way, but it's also part of the whole disinformation uh, campaign. If you're the opponent of someone and you're trying to depress the turnout that otherwise would go to your opponent, uh, you make up whatever stories you can to get people from going to the polls. I mean, we live in a democracy. On uh, The way it works is we have two major political parties. They advance candidates. Yes, you could make an argument. And in the country of 330 million people, Biden versus Trump seems sort of amazing that those are the two major political parties, throw those two candidates up. But those are the choices, and they represent significant policy differences, pol policy differences that young people are going to live with the longest. They should express their point of view. If they choose to check out, they still have to live with the consequences of what happens in the election. Yeah, and there's been so much about whether you can trust the vote or not with the Republican MAGA crowd arguing that the election was stolen. We know for a fact it was not stolen and that in many ways the United States voting system couldn't be trusted overall. I'm just looking at this article from Indonesia, which is the third largest democracy in the world, and it says that the ballots, these iconic white ballot boxes, with nearly 205 million eligible voters to choose their candidates this week were carried across the world's largest archipelago by motorcycle, boat, and even horse, as well as on foot. <laughs> I mean, compare that to the United States, where we're, we've got a huge portion of the population, what, 30% that believe the election was stolen. We're not delivering ballots by horse in this country. Well, you know, again, if you're trying to suppress voter turnout, you get people to not believe that their vote counts and that even if it does, it doesn't matter. And that's all what this is about. We live in a, in a representative democracy where we're giving our informed consent to people to represent us in making decisions on important issues, well, some small, important, some more important. And if you want to suppress voter turnout, you want to erode support for democracy. And that's because the people that are pushing these lies are people that uh, are, have a support of a relatively small percentage of the public. 30% is not the majority. However, if the other 70% doesn't show up, 30% wins. So true. We're speaking with Blair Horner. He's the executive director of NYPERG, the New York Public Interest Research Group. Blair, we got a decision coming down. In fact, as we speak on a Thursday, the Independent Redistricting Commission is set to make a decision. Now, redistricting is perhaps one of the most undemocratic processes of all time. But, of course, it matters for the division of power. And I wonder what you're thinking now as we sit on the cusp of a potential decision here. Yeah, it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, the Just for all of your 
listeners that may be thinking to themselves, I thought we did this already. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, hang on. Uh, and uh, the state uh, former Governor Cuomo advanced and got the legislature to agree to advance the proposal. It was approved by the voters to change the redistricting system in New York. And this decade is the first uh, time that it's been used. And it's been a mess. And so there have been all these court challenges that have stuck. And the most recent one was the basically that there's this um, redistricting commission run by the two political parties, sort of like the state board of elections, that's in now in charge of uh, advancing proposals to the legislature for their consideration on the new maps. And just to spare all of your listeners the boring sort of litany of horrible things that have happened we are now in a situation where that commission is advancing maps again for consideration by the legislature, and they have to basically get it done because petitioning starts at the end of the month for people to run in the primaries in June. And so it's this truncated process that there's been really no meaningful public input. You know, I, I could go on and on and on about how this is a flawed process, but it is. It is what it is. And so whether or not the two major political parties agree on the new maps I think is the question that we will have the answer to later today, because if they don't, there'll be more litigation and fighting going forward. Yeah, Blair, and I wonder if we just for a second, we're running out of time, about a minute, but the census plays in here, doesn't it? And the last census was during the Trump administration, was when ICE was out there trying to get illegals, and the census has to count everybody. So I'm wondering how much of an accurate count they were dealing with when they did the lines in the first place. Well, I mean, you, you, I mean, you're right about that. And it was also, by the way, you may recall, there was this thing called the pandemic that was happening Absolutely, at the same time. Yeah. And you were going to knock on people's doors to ask them how many people lived in their house when everyone was terrified of COVID. So, you know, I mean, but it is what it is. Again, the, in 1920, there was a census and there was the influenza, the Spanish flu influenza epidemic at the same time. So, you, you know, you got to do what you got to do to make it all work. It's just as accurate as it is. And that is the sort of the setup we have. The this is the changes in the new maps are just for members of Congress. The stakes are enormously high because there's a razor thin House Republican majority right now. And how those maps are drawn and what happens in November of 2024 could determine who controls the House of Representatives, which political party controls the House of Representatives. He is Blair Horner, executive director of NYPIRG. That's the New York Public Interest Research Group. Blair, come back again to the Capital Connection, please. Thank you. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina. Support for The Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.